Hey there, you're in dark places. Thanks for stopping by. Where's the beef? I was at work tonight at the grocery store and every Monday night I clean the meat case out front. So yeah, I'm recording this on a Monday, November 15th. Every week whenever I'm taking all the meat out of the case, there's always this one guy that'll walk by and say, what are you doing with all the meat? It's like they're always in disbelief. I don't know why that bothers people so much that I'm cleaning the meat case. I don't know if they think that I'm going to be throwing all the food away and that since they asked me about it, then I want to say, today's your lucky day. I'm just going to give you all this meat. I don't know. <laughs> but I was cleaning the meat case, and yeah, there's not as much meat in the case as there used to be. We get a truck in every other day at work, and my boss will make the order. When he prints out his order, it'll be like six or eight pages long of stuff that he orders. And then when the truck comes in, there's always like four pages of things that were out of stock. So yeah, we're not getting half as much meat in as what we used to get. It's been that way for over a year now. Prices keep getting higher, all that good stuff. So if you think any of this junk is by accident then you've lost your mind but yeah i could go on and on about that all that nonsense gets enough attention in the media as it is though so we're here to take your mind off all that crap welcome to the show here's my buddy jimmy haunted with some news This is Mr. Haunted, your In Dark Places news correspondent, with breaking news. Hold on to your hats for this one, fellas. A New Zealand city is taking its official wizard off the payroll after over two decades of service. In Christchurch, New Zealand, they're parting ways with its official city wizard after more than two decades. His offensive remarks about women and the local government's new tourism strategy reportedly spelled his doom. Ian Brackenberry Chanel is known as the Wizard of New Zealand. Apparently, even on official documents like his passport. He's been on the Christchurch City Council payroll since 1998, receiving an annual salary of about 11,000 US dollars to provide acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services as part of promotional work for the city of Christchurch, according to the New Zealand news site stuff. But that job title will soon become, like many wizards before him, a thing of legend. The council has met with the wizard and sent him a letter thanking him for his services to Christchurch over the past decades and informing him that we are bringing our formal contractual arrangement to a close, said Lynn McClelland, the council's assistant chief executive. She said the final payment will be made in December. Despite his disappointment, the wizard promised to keep visiting Christchurch's arts center to chat with tourists and locals. It makes no difference. I will still keep going, he said. They'll have to kill me to stop me. 
Holy mackerels. Thanks, Jimmy. That poor wizard. Poor guy. NBC Nightly News catches UFO on camera during story about Navajo Indians by Dave Bassner. Thanks, Dave. October 28, 2021. The Southwest is a hotbed for UFO activity. It's where Roswell is, as well as the site of the infamous Area 51 where the government is rumored to house extraterrestrial crafts. There have been plenty of sightings in Arizona, New Mexico, and Nevada, and this week, one was caught on camera, but not just any camera, a camera belonging to NBC Nightly News. Reporter Cynthia McFadden was taking a close look at the water crisis that Arizona's Navajo Nation is currently facing during the pandemic and as cameras rolled on Native Americans playing instruments and singing an unidentified disc-shaped object can be seen high above them bursting through clouds and flying across the sky while it could be a plane the way it rips through the cloud makes it seem like it might be something else you can watch it happen in the actual NBC News story at the 246 mark and for those of you wondering I'll have that link in the show notes and on the YouTube version if you doubt that it could be some kind of otherworldly craft remember that last month the government essentially announced that UFOs exist and that there is even a Navy task force designated to investigate them in fact after a former member of that task force revealed to Congress that they found off-world vehicles not made on this earth. The Senate has asked for more information, which means those classified reports might very well soon become public. And this week we got some emails to get to. This one is from Steve. He says, I loved your last episode. Mr. Haunted was telling a story about a cat singing, and it reminded me of when I was a kid. My grandpa told me a story of him sitting by the fire, and a cat came up to him and said, I'm cold. He says, I asked him, what did you do? And he said, I beat it to death with a piece of kindling. And... He was telling the truth. He thought it had the devil in it, so he had to kill it. He was born in 1916, and I think he was just a young man, so he was probably about 10 or 12 years old, and he thought it was the devil. Pretty creepy story. We got an email back on October 8th from H. It says, I just found you on YouTube. Love your show about Bigfoot and missing people. There's a website on YouTube called South Force 10 that talks about wild men in Appalachia and 
how they could be kidnapping people in the Smoky Mountains. Thought you might be interested in what he says. Please have more shows like this. So, H, this week we're going to do another Missing 411 show. It's been a while. Thank you very much for the positive feedback. And I'll definitely check out South Force 10. Sounds like my kind of show. If you'd like to send an email to us, you can do so at indarkplacespod at hotmail.com. So here's a few more stories from the cases of Missing 411 by David Pilates. In episode 8, I read the story about a missing 411 in Davis, West Virginia, which is up north and three or four hours away from me. So I was looking for one that might be a little closer. I found this one in Swiss, West Virginia, which is also north of me and a couple hours away. So then I was thinking, I wonder if there's any missing 411 cases around Jimmy up in Connecticut. So I started looking and I found one in the county next door to him. So it's kind of freaky. So I'm putting together a cool show about missing 411 cases and thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's any close by to Tracy. So I found one in the county next door to him as well. This is a story out of Swiss, West Virginia on July 30th. 1953. The city of Swiss is located approximately 15 miles southeast of Charleston, 10 miles north of the New River Gorge National River, and 15 miles east of the Monogalia National Forest. The region around the city is filled with deep valleys, steep hills, and thick and wild creeks, rivers, and mountains. The actual location of the incident is where the Gauley River and Laurel Creek come together. Locals call this area Gauley Bridge. On July 25th, Charlie and Irene Rucker had their seventh child, baby daughter Emma Jean. Irene was in bed taking care of Emma and Irene's sister-in-law, Jessie Rucker was watching Irene's other children. On the morning of July 30th, Jessie was in the home taking care of chores and occasionally going outside to watch the kids. Richard was near the barn playing. At approximately 10.30 a.m., Jessie momentarily lost track of where Richard was and started to look throughout the yard. She couldn't locate the boy and notified Irene, who in turn notified a neighbor, who then started to search the area. After approximately an hour of comprehensive searching, the local sheriff was contacted, and volunteers started to converge on the area. The West Virginia State Police was notified, and a group of patrolmen converged on Swiss to aid in the search. There were two different canine search teams that responded to the Rucker home, in the first two days after the disappearance, police dogs went straight from the Rucker home and down to the bank of the river. Searchers placed their resources into the river area. They placed a fence across the water downstream 
to catch anything floating down the river. Then they started to drag every conceivable area in the water where Richard may be located. Charlie Rooker didn't believe his son went to the river and he made those feelings known. A few law enforcement sources and Charlie believed that Richard had been kidnapped and those rumors were starting to leak. Amid the chaos of the searches and rumors, the West Virginia State Police brought in Richard's aunt, Jessie Rucker. Jessie was asked to take a polygraph exam about her knowledge of Richard's disappearance. She did take the test and proved to authorities that she didn't play any role in the boy's disappearance. During the week that Richard had been gone, Hundreds of volunteers and professionals hadn't found one clue of where the boy might be. On August 10th, searchers were a mile and a half from the worker home on a mountaintop when they found Richard's sunsuit. They stated that the suit appeared to be balled up as though someone had thrown it on the ground under a tree. An August 10th, 1953 article in the Charleston Daily had the following about the discovery. After the boy's sunsuit was discovered yesterday, bloodhounds were taken to the mountain, but failed to pick up a trail. Later in the same article was this from the state patrol corporal. He added that officers and other persons assisting in the search believe that the child did not go up where his sunsuit was found. The officer said it had rained in the area and that it couldn't be determined how long the clothes had been in the woods. Yes, bad weather had hit the search area after Richard had vanished, and this had compromised much of the search effort. The corporal never clarified how the sunsuit got to the top of the mountain. If Richard hadn't taken it there, then wouldn't it indicate a possibility of foul play? Twelve days after Richard Rucker vanished from his mountain home, his father was with searchers near the bottom of Buzzard's Rock, five miles from the Rucker home, and found his son. An August 11th, 1953 article in the Charleston Daily had this description of the find. His bruised and broken naked body was lying face downward at the foot of a 70-foot cliff. The wooded, rocky, and almost inaccessible site was about five miles from the Rucker home and about two miles from the mountaintop where the boy's sunsuit was found. An autopsy revealed Richard had a fractured skull and multiple internal injuries. There was a coroner's inquest that lasted several days. The result of this inquest leveled a decision that Richard had died from an accidental fall. Even before the autopsy and the inquest, there were rumors in the Swiss community that Richard had been murdered. Specifics about the murder allegation were never printed in any news article. Here's one from up around Jimmy's neck of the woods. This one's from Waterbury, Connecticut on March 23rd, 1939. And this is about the story of Jackie Grady, who was four years old. Jackie and his dog were playing near the 
Goville Pond when they were last seen late in the afternoon on March 23, 1939. Jackie lived in the general area and was sometimes seen near the pond. The area near the water was extremely rugged and swampy, but Jackie usually played in the open area with his dog. When Jackie didn't return home for dinner, law enforcement officials were called. Neighbors confirmed that they had seen Jackie and his dog near the swamp and pond late in the afternoon hours. It was puzzling to law enforcement that both Jackie and his dog had vanished, and they could not find a trace of either. Firemen, police officers, neighbors, and bloodhounds all searched nearly non-stop for 12 days to find the boy. It was near the end of the first day of searching that Jackie's dog returned to the family's residence, completely soaking wet. Searchers felt that was an indicator that Jackie was in the pond, or swamps. Jackie's parents reiterated that Jackie knew not to go near the swamp or pond, and that the water was dangerous. He knew this very well. Searchers emptied Scoville Pond the best they could, and could not locate the boy. Volunteers walked hand-in-hand hand through the swamp to chest-deep depths, all looking for the boy, but they couldn't find him. They did a grid search up to a 10-mile radius and found no evidence that Jackie was in the area. Near the end of the 12th day of searching, Mr. and Mrs. John Grady made a public statement that they felt Jackie had been kidnapped. Law enforcement officials agreed with the Grady's because they were sure the area within the search grid was thoroughly covered and Jackie was not there. After 12 days and 600 volunteers, rescue workers, and firemen looking for Jackie Grady, the family agreed the search should be terminated. Six weeks after Jackie disappeared, a citizen of Waterbury was walking by another pond near Scoville Pond when he thought he saw something unusual floating in the water. Searchers responded to the pond and recovered Jackie Grady. Suffice it to say, the community was shocked that Jackie's body had appeared in a pond after all their searching. How he got in that pond, where he or the body had been while they were searching, and what really happened to Jackie Grady are questions that will never be answered. Here's one from up around Tracy's neck of the woods in Portsmouth, Ohio. This involves Ronald Boggs, who disappeared when he was three years old. Portsmouth sits at the extreme southern end of Ohio, directly on the Kentucky border. A town of 20,000 people is at the confluence of the Scioto and Ohio rivers and is surrounded by eight different state parks and wilderness areas. On May 2, 1944, at approximately 11 a.m., Ronald Boggs was playing with his dog in the yard of his residence, which was in a rural and hilly section on the perimeter of Portsmouth. Even today, when you get to the outskirts of town, the region gets very rural with heavy brush and timber quite quickly. Mrs. Boggs went into the yard to get the boy and couldn't find him or the dog. She searched the yard and the surrounding woods without success and called for neighbors and law enforcement to assist. 
Hundreds of volunteer and professional searchers were covering the woods, calling for little Ronald. They never heard a response. By the middle of the day, on May 3rd, over 1,000 people were covering 40 square miles and still not finding any trace of the boy. 33 hours after Ronald vanished, two searchers were on a trail, and what they found was described in this Delphos Daily article of May 4, 1944. He was found by three boys and another dog at the head of Hedder's Hollow, a heavily wooded section about four miles north of his home. The boy had apparently spent Tuesday night in a cave with his dog. He was scratched from briars and sunburned. Articles stated that Ronald was unharmed and otherwise in decent condition when he was found. This is Mr. Haunted with this week's Cryptid Corner. This portion of the program is sponsored by Glade, an S.C. Johnson company. This week we're going to talk about Momo. Not to be confused with the urban legend regarding the Momo Challenge, this creature's full name is the Missouri Monster, or Momo for short. As the name implies, Momo has been spotted around Missouri and is described as being Bigfoot-esque as its body is covered in hair and stands roughly seven feet tall. One difference, however, is that Momo is said to have a pumpkin-shaped head with long hair covering its eyes. Additionally, it's known to emit a distinct odor, which is often mentioned in sightings of the creature. Momo is another cryptid that rose to popularity in the 70s, yet sightings have dwindled in subsequent decades. This has been this week's Cryptid Corner, back to In Dark Places. So David Pilates doesn't really come right out and tie these together with Bigfoot sightings or reports or whatever. But he leaves a lot of clues that that's probably what he thinks. So that got me thinking, well, I wonder if those three counties have had any kind of Bigfoot reports. So I found that Swiss West Virginia is in Nicholas County. And I typed in Bigfoot reports for Nicholas County, West Virginia. And I found one from 2007. I had just left the Cranberry River in the Mona Angelia National Forest where some family members were camping. I took a shortcut through Cranberry Ridge that comes out in Candom on Gully to get home. It was midnight. I was almost to the Webster County line when I saw what I thought at first was some idiot in a monkey suit in the middle of the road in front of me. I beeped my horn at it. It started to run very fast in long strides and then I realized it wasn't a man. It wasn't wearing shoes. His feet looked hairy. He was covered in reddish brown hair and about six feet tall. The hair was all even in length. 
It ran about a quarter of a mile up the hill in front of me and then tore through some elderberry bushes and disappeared down the mountain. I only got a really quick glimpse of his face so I can't accurately describe it. The next day I went back and looked at the spot where he ran through the bushes. There were some kind of prints in the mud holes in the road and the elderberry bushes were broken and bent where it went through. I had my car windows cracked open a bit but I did not hear anything unusual. I took a friend up there the next day to show her where it happened. She and I looked at the prints. She spends a lot of time in the woods and thought the print in the mud looked like a big hill print. When I told my grandma about it the next day, she said that area was notorious for seeing what we call yahoos. In fact, the hollow was called Yahoo Hollow by her age. Another family member said he treated something strange up there about 50 years earlier. And my grandma's teacher told the story of how one was on her porch one day. The teacher wouldn't send her children to school because she was so afraid of it. Grandma said her teacher described it as the same as what I saw, except it had dark brown hair and was about seven feet tall. So that missing 411 up near Jimmy was in New Haven County, Connecticut. So I started looking and I found a Bigfoot report in New Haven County from 1953. This took place 53 years ago. However, I have lived with the vision of this creature all my life and I have told no one about it. I was visiting a relative's cottage on Usatonic Lake near Indian Wells State Park in the White Hills region of Sheldon, Connecticut. Back then, this area was not inhabited very densely and still is not today. There were three of us, all aged five to six, and we left the cottage and headed for the railroad track, which ran along the Husatonic River and Lake to pick wild blackberries to put on our cereal. It was about a third of a mile from the cottage. As we were busy picking, a large six and a half to seven feet tall creature came down the steep hillside and proceeded to walk northward along the railroad tracks. Staring at the three of us once and then moving at a fast walk. I remember the length of its stride was about five feet and its arms which looked like they went almost to its knees. The body was covered in a dark brown grayish color hair and it had the face of a primate. The hair was shorter than the Bigfoots I have seen on TV and its body was thinner than those also. We ran back to the cottage to tell our parents who dismissed this as children's fantasy. This event took place before there was ever a mention of anything like Bigfoot, especially in this area. So pretty cool. 
I've never heard any Bigfoot stories from Connecticut. The report up near Tracy's neck of the woods was in Scioto County, Ohio. And I looked on the BFRO website and I found this report from 1990 in Scioto County. I was 18 then, just out of school, and was camping with friends behind my parents' house in the Shawnee Forest. I remember now that one of my friends said that he felt as though we were being watched. He was very uncomfortable and didn't leave the area of the fire much. We had heard something moving across the field from where we camped, and I wanted to see what it was. There were so many small apple trees in this field. I went down and sat under one so I could see the other side of the field without the glare of the fire. The moon was bright that night and afforded a fairly good look at what was going on. Along the tree line was a possible Sasquatch walking slightly hunched over but looking toward the campfire and the camp area in general. I remember his eyes flashing red as the fire would reflect in them. It cleared the field in a very short time and headed into a small ravine. We didn't hear it or see it again, and this was in October of 1990. It seemed to be between seven and seven and a half feet tall, dark hair color, most likely black or very dark brown. The head came to a slight point at the top. Eyes seemed smallish and would reflect red at night. Chest was large and barrel-like. Arms longer than that of a man. Stout, thick legs. Nose was broad and flat. And mouth jutted out slightly, ape-like. One thing I do remember is that when it turned and walked away, that the hair on its hindquarters was thinner and that its butt was visible. So, there does seem to be some Bigfoot activity near where all those missing 411 reports were at. Makes you wonder. So that's about all the stories we got for this week. If you're in the Lexington, Kentucky area, be sure to check out Crypticon this coming Saturday, November 20th. The guys from Mountain Monsters will be there. So stop by and tell them that Junebug said hi. Crypticon is a great time. It's a lot of fun. That'll always be a memory of my last big fun event before the world ended. I went with my buddy D back in August of 2019. We sat around and talked to the guys from Mountain Monsters for like an hour, I guess. It was great. Those are fun guys. And I would have liked to have went to it under normal circumstances. But with all the nonsense that's going on in the world right now, I'd, I don't know. I didn't really feel up to going. It's just too depressing. Really appreciate you guys listening. And we'll be back here again next week. God bless you guys. And see ya.
Hey, is this Junebug of the In Dark Places radio program?